So immersion can seem challenging for us in a museum context, because why are we sending you away when you came to be here, right? But when it comes to objects, having co-presence can be really powerful. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. My guests are Barry Joseph and Jesse Joe Gomez. And this conversation is special for a few different reasons. One is that we're diving into augmented, mixed, and virtual reality in a bigger way for this episode. And uh, rather than going, you know, jumping into a bunch of technical jargon and, and getting uh, way too far down a road to be practical to most educators, we really try to define terms in this episode. Let's uh, talk about exactly what it is uh, to be virtual versus augmented reality and so on. Uh, the other reason that it's really special to me is that uh, Jesse Joe, who is a graduate of Parsons Design and Technology Program at the new school, uh, Parsons New School for Design, uh, is and also a budding STEM educator, which I'm so excited about, uh, is also formerly a student of Barry Joseph's uh, a lifetime ago when Barry was running the online leadership program at Global Kids, uh, New York institution. Um, he taught Jesse Joe in game design. And so this is also a reunion of sorts. Barry is now the associate director for uh, digital learning at the American Museum of Natural History and someone who is uniquely qualified to talk about augmented reality, how it's being used in museum learning, and also how it's being produced. So whether you're an educator, a learner, or somebody who's just curious about the topic, I think there's something in here for everybody. And guess what? I'm not even going to tell you this time to get on to wherever you've downloaded this podcast, rate and review the podcast for uh, an, a chance to enter and win a Google Pixel by tweeting hashtag no such thing podcast. That would be boring if I did that again. So I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to tell you to uh, rate and review the podcast, even though you should go and do that. Without further ado, check out my conversation with Jesse Joe Gomez and Barry Joseph. This is a special episode because I have uh, Jesse Joe Gomez here as my co-host today. Oh, yeah. Jesse, thanks for doing this. No problem. I'm glad to be here. And you guys, we are joined by, um, I don't think it's an overstatement to say legend in, <laughs> in the space of uh, oh, Mark. youth work, uh, uh Digital learning, game design, certainly games and education, uh, Barry Joseph, who is now with the American Museum of Natural History here in New York. Um, and you guys actually know each other. Yeah. Yeah. Tell tell just briefly for those who don't know it, the story uh, of how you guys know each other, because it's been a while. Jesse Joe is now uh, graduated from Parsons uh, Design and Technology Program. She is a young designer, game designer herself. Uh, and I would even put a slash designer educator because you're doing a lot of work with young people yep. to sort of bring them up through the journey that you've been through. Um, tell us how you guys know each other. 
Lobo Kids. Lobo Kids. Uh, when GK. I was a teenager, GK all day. <laughs> when I was a teenager, um, I joined this program called Global Kids. Uh, they really care about social justice, and um, there was a. I first joined Global Kids because we were going to make a machinima with something called Second Life, and that was very interesting because it involved games and and changing the world. So I joined Global Kids, and uh, there I met Barry. And Machinima, what's Machinima? Machinima, it's it's like a video made out of games, and you can add voices over it, or you can add subtitles. You might see a lot of like Minecraft Machinimas nowadays, but uh, back then it was Second Life. That's right, back then it had its own name. Man, it wasn't just the things life. on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, do you remember the topic for the machinima that you worked on? Yeah, it was actually child sex trafficking, very mm-hmm. serious topic. And That's I was right. only in 10th grade, 10th grade researching this. And before you graduated, or maybe it was a week or two after, uh, I got to interview you on the main stage at G- the Games for Change Festival here in New York. Um, young people had been on the stage before speaking about particular projects here and there, but I think this was the first time that the Games for Change audience got to hear from a high school student about their experience and what it meant for them, not just playing games, but getting to learn about how to design games and think about games in a context of making the world a better place. As you were set to begin your time in college studying what? Uh, design and technology or game design at Parsons. Yeah, that, that was exciting. And when, when I think back to um, our time, you, our lives, you know, being interconnected, I, I go back to that moment and it's one of the things I'm most proud of um, oh. to have gotten seen what you were able to do as a high school student and then, you know, share what that meant for you being involved in an after school program, being involved with both social and global issues and game design and, and the way you brought the two together. I, I still find great inspiration from. I remember saying I want to see games and classrooms everywhere and I was 17 year old, years old when I said that. I'm 24 year, years old now, and it's just so great to see how far we've come, and, and makes me proud. Yeah. And amazingly, I'm the same age I was at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but I hear today, when, when, cause I'm seeing you now for the first time in a few years, thank you, thanks, Mark, um, that you're now going into education. And, yeah. and, and that's, that's the thing for me for thinking about all the young people whose lives you're going to touch and what it's going to mean oh. for you. <laughs> well, here's, here's an addition to the uh, Love Fest is that. Before we got here, before uh, Barry was held up on on the uh, uh, awesome New York mm-hmm. City subway, love it. Um, Jesse, Joe, and I were talking, and and we were talking a little bit about her becoming an educator, uh, educator slash designer, and um, she said something about uh, not always knowing who to look up to, and. Um, I thought, yeah, I've, I've totally been there. And the truth is when I started doing this work in New York, because I had, I had a sort of previous life doing this work in Boston, and then I came down here and I started doing this work in New York, and, and Barry really was somebody that, that early on I had the same feeling. I didn't know who to Aww. look up to. I didn't know, uh, you know whether this was a career and a life um, beyond the job that I was in at the time. And uh, and you were were absolutely a mentor in that way to me, and so I'm so psyched to be here to be talking about what you're up to now because uh, after having uh, co-founded Games for Change, after having run some amazing uh, the digital learning programs at Global Kids, you are now, or I should say. Uh, the Museum of Natural History is now lucky to have you in this amazing role at the museum. Um, tell us just a little bit about um, 
your role at the museum and uh, how you're applying your your skills as a learning designer of many different contexts uh, into what you're doing now. I'd love to, Mark, but first I have a confession to make. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> and all the warm words you set, just put in my direction, I send back to you a thousandfold. And anyone who knows you understands why. Your thoughtfulness and the way that you think about young people, connecting with them and giving them space to grow and be both an adult voice and be there in the way that adults can be supportive without squashing or controlling has always been an inspiration for me. And while you're saying some ways that I was a mentor for you, we mentored each other. And when we had our Tuesday or Thursday lunches at Eisenberg's getting the, yeah. the meatloaf special meatloaf with an egg cream, um, it, it's getting to hear from you about your life, your personal life, your professional life, how you balance the two has always been very deeply moving for me. And I really deeply appreciate you. And I'm so excited to get to be here on your podcast series. Um, I'm super blushy and, oh, I'll, love and I'll, I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> right, it's back to me. So <laughs> uh, just last week, I um, started my sixth year at the American Museum wow. of Natural History, which means I've completed five years, which um, is tremendously exciting for me. Um, the museum has extremely robust um, after-school programs for young people, uh, and in the daytime as well for younger children, and uh, after hours uh, for adults as well. Uh, my focus has been mostly in the middle school and high school, and my role when it was originally developed was to think about how to support the development of a strategic plan to bring digital learning in a more robust way, in an ongoing way, into the after-school youth programs, which primarily focus on, as you can imagine, a wide range of science topics. Mm. Um, split between young people who are learning for the first time about a new topic that they might develop a passion around and young people who already have a passion and really want to go deep and understand how scientists do the work that they do so they can become one themselves. And that's meant um, using uh, tools that speak to both types. So that means using games like Minecraft, tools that were certainly not designed to teach science or nor used by scientists, but figure out how to use them for education around science content and at the same time using tools that scientists use. Um, whether it's about um, visualizing outer space in the dome or doing coding uh, of data to study data sets um, and then bring them uh, so that they're accessible to young people inside of a, um, an after-school context. So I did that for the first three years, um, and I'm still involved in that work, and it's still uh, very exciting for me to see um, what the new potential areas are um, around that kind of youth engagement. But a year and a half ago, uh, my focus shifted in the museum. Uh, as the museum began to um, appreciate in a new way the power of prototyping mm -hmm. to develop new concepts, uh, new experiences, and the potential for actually working with young people and the public um, on projects before they were done to go through an iterative process. Uh, something that we do all the time with young people, uh, you know, Mark and, and Jesse Joe, when young people are developing things in after-school contexts, but not something we often did at the museum. Um, and so I'm part of a group um, that has been around for many years, but shifted focus to add a major component to think about all of the scientists working in the museum. Quiz time. Who knows how many scientists work full-time at the museum? Take mm -hmm. a guess. Uh... I don't know. <laughs> more than 50 or less than 50? I'm going to say... I'm going to say more than 50. I'm, I'm going to say 220. Whoa! Whoa. It's around 200. Just over 200. Wow. <laughs> Mark wins the prize. Amazing. Excellent. You're going to win that, that uh, <laughs> pixel this month. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we have over 200 scientists working full-time at the museum. And much of their work relies on digital tools of science mm. um, and science visualization as well. So how do we bring that kind of 
work that scientists are doing to the visitors when the work itself is digital. You can't stick it behind glass in a diorama. Mm. And it, it, does it need to be interactive? How do you wrap stories around it? So for the last year and a half, our group has been prototyping AR experiences, VR experiences, mixed reality experiences, and going through rapid uh, development cycles and iterations every few weeks to take out something new to the floor and see how visitors engage with it and how it helps them understand what our scientists are doing, what scientists are doing in the world, and develop an appreciation for that type of content. This summer, we've now shifted. We've made recommendations to the museum. So in the next year, we're going to start unrolling a number of these initiatives. And it's mm. tremendously exciting as an institution as we start thinking about what the future looks like for museum visitors. Mm. So you guys, is it is it safe to characterize you guys as kind of like a, is skunk works a familiar term? Um, skunk works. Like skunk like an R&D shop. Yeah, or, like an R&D shop or like skunk works is usually uh, the fancy name given when like a, um, a big commercial uh, company will sort of take a a piece of its uh, personnel and put together the smartest people to kind of like go into the space and figure out what's next. Um, so we operated like that last year. Some somewhat. organizations yeah. do it better than others, right? There's like a lot of skunk works that um, end up not folding the work back into the institution that well. And then there's others that do it extremely well and it ends up being the lifeblood of a big place. So um, so we're not set up to be that permanently, mm -hmm. but that was a big piece of our work last year. We're now moving over to do less skunk works and more of production. Mm -hmm. Let's see what we learn as a result of that kind of innovative, disruptive activity and see how to make it sustainable. That's amazing. Yeah. It's been tremendously exciting. And at the same time, keeping young people involved in the process as well who are in our after-school programs. So cool. I have lots of lots of process questions that I want to come oh, back me to. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah, that I would I would love to come back to uh, some of that stuff. But so we want to talk about um, you have most recently been working on some augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality. Um, can you, before I ask specific we questions about those things, yeah, can yeah, we, great. Can we yeah, define please this? Please tell us. I think, yeah, for, for Jesse, Joe, and I are like, <laughs> you know, Pokemon Go players yes. and have, yes. like, have messed around with augmented reality. But Jesse, Joe is a game designer and, yeah. and um, you know, I'm savvy enough, but but by no means a an expert in this space. So I think starting by just defining some terms would be super helpful. Sure. And I think the terms are going to keep shifting. So I think partially what's important is is um, what are the affor technological affordances we're looking at? Because the tools keep shifting and the terms we use for them will keep shifting as well. But I think what's constant is the kind of experiences that we can create for people using these tools um, or that we can experience ourselves. So for me, one of the things that we're looking at is immersion, the ability to transport yourself into an environment and feel like you're somewhere else. That's one of the things that we're looking at when we're talking about this suite of possibilities. A second thing that we're looking at is um, what I'd call co-presence, um, where I feel like a virtual something, could be a person, it could be an object, is sharing the real physical space around me. Right. Some tools are better at supporting one than the other. So for immersion, virtual reality is what we tend to think about. Virtual reality is me putting on a headset that's going to replace what I'm seeing with my eyes right now with something that's on the screen. So it's like an Oculus Rift or PlayStation VR, that type of stuff, right? Exactly. Cool. And maybe headsets as well. Right. So my audio is also being replaced. So when I think about VR, I'm thinking about replacing um, the the 
present um, world around me with something else, mm. whether it's virtual or, or something else, right? Um, that's so it's really strong for immersion, right? Co-presence, I'll think about things that are about augmented reality. So let me, for example, take a, um, well, my, uh, excuse me, a Pokemon Pokemon Go, for example, is an example of uh, co-presence or what people originally thought about it when it first came out. Mm-hmm. Oh, look, this Pokemon is in the room with me. Oh, look, the Pokemon right. is in the park with me. And using both um, a camera that would show the Pokemon pictured in front of me and actually, I think more importantly, um, GIS information that said, I know I am in a, it knows I'm in a park or mm-hmm. it knows I'm by the beach and it will give me content related to where I am. So it felt like it was really there. Um, that gives me a sense that something's there with me. So for me, working in a museum, What's important as an object-based museum is that people can connect with objects when they're in the museum. They come with people to the museum. They want to keep connected with their social group. And we want them connected to the space itself. So immersion can seem challenging for us in a museum context because why are we sending you away when you came to be here? Mm -hmm. But when it comes to objects, having co-presence can be really powerful. So we've said a little bit about AR, a little bit about VR. So what's mixed reality? Um, I thought mixed reality was just hype when I first heard the term. I saw it in Wired Magazine in the interview about Magic Leap. Magic Leap uses the term as well. Mm -hmm. But I've seen it picked up ever since. And when I first experienced HoloLens, which was Microsoft's developer tool last year, um, I was like, oh, this is what this is about. And I fell in love with it because what... Um, HoloLens was a model for is what happens when you can bring the two together. Like, can you actually have immersion and co-presence at the same time? Can I feel like objects are in this physical space around me um, and feeling immersed in that in that fictional um, uh, marriage of the real and the fictional um, without sending me somewhere else? And so with HoloLens, I have... Um, with HoloLens, I have something augmented in the space around me. But unlike with uh, Pokemon Go, where... Wherever I move my phone, that Pokemon stays there. It's not actually in that space. It's an illusion only if I sit still and don't move. But with mixed reality, um, the device is aware of the space around it. So we're sitting in this room that's about, you know, 12 by 6 feet, I'd Mm -hmm. say. There's a table right in front of us. We're all sitting on chairs. There's desks behind each of you. If If we had a mixed reality experience in this space... The technology would know all the things I just described. It would know where the walls are on the height of the ceiling. And it could decorate the room and put the water on the floor. It could put little objects on the tables. Mm-hmm. It could have water dripping from the ceiling onto the table, running off the t- down along the table and off the edge. And that's a really powerful sense of immersion, but mixed up with their, the space around us. Yeah. So all three give us really wonderful things to explore about both sending us somewhere new and keeping us where we are, as well as keeping us... Um, uh, connected with the people we're with versus uh, isolating us and giving us a private experience. I'll tell you, <clears throat> I'll tell you where my my imagination is at the moment. Is, and and this is one of the things I love about this space is that um, a lot of it's sort of undiscovered, right? And and just so brand new. And so when people describe it to me, uh, or I'm reading about it, it. I start to have my wheels turn about like, oh, here's where this might be interesting. And and while you were talking, what I was thinking is the, the place where I am in my life right now is uh, like – much of my mental energy is putting kids to bed, right? <laughs> and I'm thinking, wow, wouldn't wouldn't a mixed reality environment be interesting if I could set an environment for them to go to bed to? Imagine if you could sort of like scaffold 
the kind of dream state, like have them Mm. make some choices about how they want to go to bed at night and what they want to think about and what they want the environment to look like. Um, so I was thinking about like a waterfall I'd put in my kid's room and, and, uh, 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 you know, a friendly monster I'd put in the corner that, uh, would keep them company and make them feel safe. You know what the most important element's always going to be? What? You. Yeah, yes, that's true. That's and that, true. that's one of the powerful things, right? Thinking about how to build that connection that you have that they yeah. rely on, but take it in a new direction that technology can support. Yeah. Some people might be like, I just want to get out of the room. <laughs> let, let the device do it for me, right? right? And that's the danger side. Right. And the positive side is you can create this magnificent, beautiful experience in 10 or 20 years, yeah. or they will with their kids, let's say, right? Um, that uh, will be deeply meaningful for both of you. Yeah. So um, that's so interesting. I can think of, uh, well, let's, let's, let's go on. <laughs> um, but it's true that this is, um, undiscovered territory. Um, it's moving very fast. Um, there are things that are popping up. They're trying to fix it in space. There are theaters you can go to, to experience this technology. There's tools you can bring into your home. Um, There's things we're trying to think in the museum that we can offer to people, but it's changing very fast. And as it starts to have an impact in different spaces, in entertainment, in education, for military training, for healthcare, we're going to start seeing examples that will be as well known as Pokemon Go, but I think more powerful and more effective in helping us get a picture of what the future might look like. So let's dive into a specific example. So starting with um, augmented reality, which okay. which I think uh, Micro Rangers is is Micro Rangers. Uh, yeah. So Micro Rangers is a is a project that you've done some work on in the last yeah. couple of years. That's and, um, right. Tell us about that, and and um, and let's to the extent that you can. Um, Talk also realistically about what's been the success and and what's held it back from being everything you dreamed it might have been. So uh, long story short, Micro Rangers began three and a half years ago. So I'm going to try and condense this as much as I can. Uh, We uh, have a a scientist at the museum who was curating an upcoming exhibit that was about the human microbiome. And there was a thought to do something outside this temporary exhibit that would let visitors explore the same concepts, but mapped onto our permanent halls. We have 45 permanent halls. If you've, you know, if you've seen our Blue Whale or been to the Hall of Gems and Minerals, these are examples of our permanent halls. Mm. We build them and they stay there, we hope, for decades. Um, so how do we map contemporary uh, content and experiences on top of them is a question we often ask ourselves. And so this was an opportunity to explore that. And quite luckily, um, the scientist, Susan Perkins, um, is also um, an avid game player, uh, board game, tabletop player, and uh, really was in- fascinated to explore with us what it could look like to build not a tour in the museum, but a game-like experience, and was also um, a game for, pun intended, uh, to do it uh, with a group of young people in an after-school setting. Mm. So we spent a few months developing a prototype for what could become Micro Rangers. Um, we explored uh, a number of different opportunities in the halls that uh, where an exhibit here or an exhibit there could highlight a particular story about um, microbiology uh, and microbiomes, um, and then developed this um, AR experience where um, in the narrative, you are a microranger. You shrink down to the microscopic level, and you work with microscopic life forms um, at their scale to work with scientists at the human scale to identify and solve science-based problems mm. within the exhibits. 
And the role that AR played was you would hold this coin. They're called challenge coins. They're, they're quite large and have, have a good heft to them. And when you held it in your hand and you held your phone over the coin, the characters at uh, within the game would appear in your hand, mm. and it didn't matter where you moved the phone; they'd always be looking at you. And you could turn the and you could turn the coin around to turn them around. Um, and at different points in the game, you'd be signaled to get out your coin and talk with the characters. So, where does a kid coming to the museum or or a family coming to the museum? Where do they pick up? So um, this prototype led to um, the funds to develop a second youth program and fully fund the project. Got and it. then a year ago, last December or two years ago, this upcoming December, um, we launched it to the public. And um, we had carts, a cart on the floor, the Micro Rangers cart, where people could come and get the coin if they like, mm-hmm. or get a postcard, because you can do it with paper as well. Or they, you can download it online. I mm-hmm. think if you go to microrangers.org, it'll, it'll click you over to get you what you need. It's a PDF you can download. It's a free app you can get on Android or, or Apple. Um, and then... The game would direct you to a particular hall to begin, the Hall of Biodiversity. And then from there, it might send you in any of three different directions. And you can have anything from a you know, 10 to 15 minute experience to an over hour experience, depending on how much you wanted to go deep mm. into the, the rabbit hole that, uh, that Mike Rangers opens up for you. Mm. What has been the reaction of young people playing with these AR games, the Micro Rangers? Like, how do they react to this? Sounds so exciting. Young people, um, especially ones who feel more comfortable coming to the museum with a a screen in their hand, um, love an opportunity to not only incorporate the technology that they're used to, but also interact with something which otherwise only asks and only allows you to understand it by using your eyes that is looking into an exhibit, Mm -hmm. interpreting what you're seeing, and maybe reading the copy that's alongside it. If there's a caregiver who's engaged, they'll read the copy as well or come with some prior knowledge and ask the child some questions. That's a wonderful point of connection. Mm -hmm. You're there with a caregiver or you're a caregiver with a young person, and you say, what do you think about that? Or notice what's over there. But caregivers don't always have what they need to scaffold that engagement, and young people don't always have the museum literacy required to know how do you make personal meaning out of an exhibit. Mm -hmm. So MicroRangers creates an opportunity to scaffold that engagement, both for the, the young person and the caregiver. Um, and it's been very exciting to see them get excited uh, and be led through the museum, sometimes to exhibits they've already seen, sometimes to halls they didn't even know existed. Yeah. That's awesome. I love hearing about technologies that bring people together physically so that, you know, child-parent relationship and interacting together with that, I think that's wonderful. I was, I was thinking the exact same thing that... Um I feel like when I go to the museum, even if like people think of it as a family outing, right? You put even if even if you go with a, a friend or a partner, um, a lot of times you still go and have this sort of isolated experience. It's like yeah, you're I'm, just walking around, looking at things. You're looking at things together, but you're not really talking about it or asking each other questions about it. Yeah, and you're sort of all this reflection is happening internally, but um, mm-hmm. we want to bring it out as much as possible. So I love that. Another air example for how we achieve just this for younger kids is in our Hall of Northwest Coast Indians. Mm. That's our oldest permanent hall, and we actually just announced recently that we're going to be doing some significant changes to, to That's the one it. with the big canoe in it? The canoe is actually right outside the hall, okay. but it's the same content. Okay. It's the hall which has the totem poles. Okay. And it represents um, the First Nations of Canada, which is the western coast of Canada, going a little bit up into Alaska, a little bit down into the northwest of, of the U.S. as well. Um, and it is a, a hall which has almost no interpretation. You'll see an object, and maybe the name of it, but that's all you get. And so one of the things that we explored a year and a half ago was creating something for um, people with young children to let them use a technology that they know very well 
crayons and paper mm. and integrate it with an AR experience to scaffold that kind of engagement we were just talking about. So in short, what you have are these activity sheets, which I tend to think of as the kind of menus you get in a diner where there's, you know, a, a word jumble and a, yeah. uh, can you find this image? But it always directs you to an object in the hall. It could be a puffin mask or a, um, uh, a chieftain staff. Mm-hmm. And part of the activity on the sheet is also doing coloring. So the, the, the caregiver and the child will do some of the activities together, some of the child will do on their own, but eventually they'll do the coloring on the sheet. Let's say they've colored in the puffin mask. Right? The app then allows you to look at that image, that flat image on the page, and boom, up pops a 3D model of that object, in this case, the puffin mask. And the texture mapped around the puffin mask is the child's art from the page. Oh. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> and and so this was fun. created with contemporary members of these, the communities from whom these objects came from, these cultural treasures have come from. So the child is collaborating with contemporary artists from the communities to create this experience. I missed that part. So how the contemporary members of the community are involved, how? They helped us design, choose the ob- choose the cultural treasures, Got it. Um, create the animations, create the art, design the activities on the page, as well as, Jesse Joe, young people from Global Kids who are in an after-school program. Oh, Amazing. that's cool. <laughs> so it all comes together there. Um, and so we're showing that these objects can make personal, uh, that we're showing that AR can be used to help to scaffold engagement between caregivers and young children, to help the young people have a personal connection through technology, to actually go to the actual object, Mm. observe it, think about it, and then experience it in this 3D way. And through the story that's on the flip side of the sheet, understand in a contemporary way how these um, cultural treasures are produced and why they're used in these, these, uh, the nations, the first nations of Canada. Mm. What's so cool about the, there's a lot of dimension to it, what you just said, but one of the things I love the most about it is when you when if you're an educator and you start to do some research on like augmented reality in the classroom or mixed reality in the classroom, um, what pops up in the first you know ten search results is like a bunch of pretty gnarly PowerPoints with like four bullet points of what the benefits are of AR, VR, and mixed reality, and they're almost always pretty. Um, pretty sort of sterile and and surface level it's like engagement uh number one <laughs> and then some Which like <laughs> some yeah sure yeah. uh some uh redundant version of engagement uh so it's like work uh, together <laughs> working together or or more active you know get get kids out of seats active learning um and, and that really feels like such a such a um, how do I even say it just feels so tip of the iceberg. It seems like a low bar. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's, it's so much it's, more. It's, it's such a low bar um, because I think that as we're reimagining what learning lifelong um, looks like with information at your fingertips that you have and access uh, to technologies that you have. Um, I think this just presents a, a dimension that's just uh, so exciting and belongs in those first 10 search results. But but you really have to dig. Um, so uh, super interesting. What do you think are, I, I think, with I know it's not fair. Well, oh, let me mention one of the things that I really like is there's a um, there's a description of these terms out there that that describes um, 
AR, VR, mixed reality on a spectrum, right? Where a spectrum, that's ed- interesting. educators who are coming to it can think about the sort of here and now as one point in the spectrum, right? All things physical and the dimension that we understand. If virtual reality is the other end of that spectrum, AR and mixed reality fall in between, right? So um, you're sort of adding layers uh, of virtual. dimension of virtual to okay. your reality. And I think that spectrum really helped me huh. to place AR and mixed reality on um, it, in my mind, created sort of a mental map for how those things fall. You know what I use? Yeah. When I started thinking about this stuff a few years ago, and I referenced some of this earlier, but didn't put it together, I thought about two things. Mm-hmm. I thought, is this technology about sending me somewhere else? Mm-hmm. Somewhere impossible to go to, somewhere I can't go to, somewhere I might not want to go to, somewhere too dangerous to go to, <laughs> somewhere that doesn't exist? Yeah. Or is it about connecting me deeper in the place where I am? So I call that the here-there continuum. And then there's the me-we. Is it about enhancing my personal experience? Like, I love reading the Sunday New York Times, but I'm not doing that with you. Like, right. that's, that's in my own personal experience. Yep. Um, or is it we? Is it about the three of us having this conversation? Right. And there's values on both sides. And you can put those together, one on a horizontal, one on a vertical. You get four quadrants. And you can put most AR, VR, and mixed reality technology into one of those four quadrants. Or some can fit in multiple, and different applications can fit yeah. in one or the other. So when I think about, for me, I'm in museums, I want people to feel like they're there at the museum, there, and connected with the people they came with, we. So the there we quadrant becomes one of the main areas I would recommend museums with, should think about, while the me, their experiences, it's all about me and sending me somewhere else, that's going to be the domain at home. Uh-huh. When I get a, a video game console that has these technologies, and I'll do that at home. I love that. So it's been a helpful framework for me. It's not the only way to think about it. It doesn't cover everything, um, but but that's been a, a powerful um, rubric. Mm. I feel like this may be something you've written about. Why, in fact, I have. Well, my, my, my blog, mushmi.org, M-O-O-S-H-M-E.org, is where I kind of think about this stuff. Yep. Um, and um, uh, the American Association of Museum has a group called, uh, um, led by Elizabeth Merritt, called the Center for the Future of Museums. Mm-hmm. I think I got that right. And each year they put out a report called Trend Watch, which isn't about the most important things happening at museums, but it's about trends in society that will will impact or are impacting museums. Uh, It's free to download. And not the one that came out this year, but the one that came out last year, one of the six areas was about AR, VR. um, And I was delighted when they found it useful to talk about um, uh, this framework and, and use it to talk about some of the things going on in the museum space. So I think it's really interesting that um, at the museum you use AR and VR to create a more immersive experience. Um, Immersive in the sense, like you said, like a lot of the time when you're using VR, AR, you want to be sent away or somewhere you can't be or somewhere you don't want to be, etc. But at the museum, you're creating, you're you're at the museum and now you're going deeper into the museum in a way you couldn't do physically. It's a a way you're emerging yourself more digitally. For learning. That's right. That's great. And, and, you know, growing up, for me, that's what a space show was. The space Mm. show in the planetarium was this way to have this immersive experience to pretend that I'm in outer space. And then when IMAX screens started popping up in in museums, I mean, I remember as a kid going to see the IMAX screen, going to see, I think it was something about flying Mm. um, at the American Museum of Natural History with my family. And when that screen was so big, it took my entire field of view. I felt like my body was moving when the balloon would go around. That was an immersive experience using that technology at the time. So 
it's not like immersion's new, um, but there's new ways that we can take uh, immersion uh, where we can keep talking to each other and be social. I mm-hmm. couldn't really talk to my family during the IMAX movie and actually walk, get up and walk around and move through spaces sure. uh, and, and afford all sorts of new opportunities, which in part can be used for learning. Yeah. I'll never forget my first large format film experience with, with uh, IMAX, what people now know as IMAX for the most part. And that was an amazing experience. The first time you do it, to sit down uh, with, uh, you know, screen that's coming around you and to really feel like you're, you know, it was like I, I, after a while, I don't know how many helicopter shots one can <laughs> one can stomach. But um, but the first time it really felt like, wow, there's so much you, possibility. Here. It was transporting. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's why we went. And now they're in 3D. So now when you go to IMAX to, the, to see a science movie at a museum, you, you are more likely not to be watching it in 3D, which takes it to that next level. I love that. Yeah. Um, so I actually want to change gears a tiny bit. Um, but, <laughs> um, before I do... <laughs> before I do, uh, as somebody who's... who's Evaluating this stuff and and in front of it uh, more constantly than Jesse, Joe, and I. Um, what's the coolest thing you've experienced? Can be recent, but can also just be in general in the area of AR, VR, and mixed reality. I had a feeling you were going to ask that because I've been listening to the episodes and you've been asking everyone this. So I had a few in mind that I was going to mention. Um, and I want to pick ones that are, I can really explain in a good reason why I'm picking those. Yeah. The first one I'm going to pick is called chocolate. Have either one of you experienced chocolate? I mean... Uh, the, the, the VR experience called chocolate. Right, no. <laughs> so there is nothing about the real-world chocolate you perhaps were just thinking about in this experience except to say real-world chocolate gives you this high and mm. it's sweet and it's exciting, right? Um, this VR artist made this experience that can't be described as anything other than complete and absolute and utter whimsy. There's no mm. sense to what's going on in it and it's just crazy. Um, you have hands. So one of the challenges in some VR experiences is that you can move around, but um, you're disembodied. You don't have a body. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have hands. In this one, you have hands. It's these crazy robot hands. And the VR knows where your your hands are and where your arms are because you're holding the controllers. And you hold the controllers just so it knows where they are. And when you're looking at your arms, this music starts. And suddenly, your arms start transforming and pulsing as if they're also like the bass to the music. And because you're moving your arms in real, the real world, you get a kind of a sense that it's really happening. And then boom, giant smiling cat faces come flying out, <laughs> dancing in the sky. Ah. And these little creatures come out and they're dancing too. And you can shoot the, the crazy smiling cat faces at the people who are dancing. And it doesn't stop them from dancing. It just makes them dance even more. <laughs> and it's like this dance video that you're in the middle of. And whether you want to or not, you're starring in it. And it's just goofy and wacky. And I like it because it, it's not only this fully embodied experience, um, but uh, it, it it undercuts some of the very heavy seriousness mm. that you can that many of these th- technologies I think are weighed down by. An opposite flip side of that is just last week at the Future of Storytelling, I uh, had, it was a remarkable experience. It's called it's called the Last Goodbye. It's a combination, and we can break this down if we need to. Mm-hmm. Three hundred and sixty video and VR. You jump back and forth between the two of traveling with a Holocaust survivor back to the concentration camp where he lost his sister and his parents. Holy cow. Well, he takes you in an immersive way back to all of the places where um, where he lived, where, where they died. Um, 
And that's like the opposite of chocolate. One is complete whimsy and one is, you know, this, this very sorrowful, um, traumatic experience that's um, about developing empathy uh, and awareness about not just this one's person's experience, hmm. who you feel connected to, and not just about the Holocaust, which you feel connected to the story when he talks about it, but about global suffering, which he's, he's contemporizing as well. Um, and VR allows us to explore, I think, both of these directions. Um, I think one was maybe too serious, and maybe in a few years we'd look back at it as being a little hokey, hmm. because we haven't explored how to do this yet, and chocolate might be seen as way too whimsical and without any scaffolding or structure but, uh, to help you understand the experience you're having. But both, I think, point to are both wonderful examples about the potentials of, of that environment. But the most powerful experience I've had, because um, the two I just mentioned I found both moving, but not I wasn't sobbing in, and I was in the one I'm about to tell you about, is called, um, it's from England, and it's from a theater company that I think worked with Vive, uh, and it's called Draw Me Close. Mm. If you have an opportunity to see Draw Me Close, spoiler alert, skip ahead two minutes. Spo- this is um, an auto. It's a, like one scene of an autobiography where you get to learn about this artist's um, childhood and his relationship with his mom and his dad. You don't know what's going to happen when you go in. The environment is not photorealistic. Instead, it's the opposite. It's as if a child is drawing it in pencil and you're standing inside it and you get to watch it being drawn. Mm. So it's very beautiful, very, vo- very evocative. And you are um, you are the boy. Um, and. What's powerful about this is you go into a room, you take off your shoes, you feel the shag carpet on your feet, Mm. and the mom comes in, and the mom speaks to you. And you suddenly have an experience that's unlike any in VR because you realize you're not hearing her voice in your headset. Mm. She's actually in the room as an actress, and she's wearing motion capture, and she is live rendered into your experience. So she moves towards you, the character moves towards you. As she talks to you, you hear her. As she says, hon, I'm home. And comes to give you a hug. You feel her arms around you. And you have to decide, do I receive this hug? Do I hug her? And the experience that transfolds is as equally beautiful and horrifying and terrifying for this child. And at the moment when I was there choosing to sing songs with her and draw with her with this virtual tool, the, the, that moment of connectedness that this artist was able to communicate that he had with his mom in those moments was so beautiful, I was sobbing. And it was something that people often experience when they go through this experience, that intense connection with another person. But it was the artist who wasn't there with an actress who was really there, but just for me, but I was experiencing virtually. So complicated to think about, but in the emotional experience, it was very simple and clear. Mm. And the connection was very real. Oh, my God. Why did you experience that? Uh, that was at the Tribeca Film Festival, which every year has a, um, a very hard to get into or you have to be really willing to wait very long on lines for uh, VR theater. Wow. Um, and I got to experience this there. It's great. Yeah, so there's some really remarkable things that, that people are doing content-wise, the experiences they're designing, and all of them uh, really pushing the envelope of, of what you can do with this technology suggesting what the future might that look like. That one kind of blows my mind. My, blows my, my mind, too. Yeah. I mean, I had a VR example that comes nowhere near close. Um, there's this game called Cat Lateral Damage. I'm obsessed with cats. You get to play as <laughs> a cat, and I thought that was moving until I heard this. So, what's, wow. what's Cat Lateral Damage? Cat Lateral Damage, you play as a cat that knocks things over. Um, there's, a, <laughs> there's a VR mode. It's... 
Uh, you, yeah, you get to use two PlayStation Move controllers, and you get to see your paws, and you can just swipe at things and knock them over and get a good <laughs> score before time runs out. So, <laughs> do you do you feel like uh, you know your cats better after playing Cat Lateral? Band? Oh, it just makes me know that I am part cat. <laughs> I can spend hours in that game. Why would I be able to swap things for that long? Right. <laughs> Joe, we knew that. We knew you that. are <laughs> feline. And so you experienced it where? This is also what's This is on PlayStation. Physically, where were you? Oh, uh, in my room. You were at home? At home. So at home. So you were able to experience this at home. You asked me. I talked about two festivals, right? So right now we have this gap between you either have a tool at home mm-hmm. or you have a friend who has it and you do mm-hmm. it there or you have to go somewhere. And a year right. ago, you really couldn't go anywhere. And now we're just here in New York City using one city as an example. There's so many places you could go. Yeah. And many of them are commercial places that are set up just for this. Some are in bars that are adapting to have these. Yeah. There's one movie theater that that, that, that IMAX has identified as, an ex, as a location for it. And we're starting to see in other cities, museums as a location where you can experience them as well. Where, um, I know VR World. I did some interviews there mm-hmm. at the Games for Change Festival. Great episode. VR yep. Summit. Um, I loved how people got increasingly more um, um, lugubrious. What's the word? <laughs> yeah. I said the night went on here doing the interviews. Just, just jolly and, and yes, added, added whimsy as, as we went, which was fun. Um, is, is there a place, uh, time out, like where, where do I look for where to go for good VR? <laughs> That's, like I want to know. That's yes, a really I, good I question. To say that. Um, well, you can Google it. And you'll see what pops up, because people listening to this will be all over the country. Um, There are some museums. If you're in Philadelphia, you can go to the Franklin. If you're in Kansas City, you can go to Prairie Fire, which is a museum there. If you're in L.A. or New York, and then soon, I think, Orlando, maybe Cincinnati, and a few other cities, IMAX um, is putting theaters in in AMC locations. Wow. L.A. and New York currently has theirs up and running. The other ones are coming. Um, If you're in Utah, I believe The Void has one set up, um, which are phenomenal designers who've designed the Ghostbuster experience, which you can experience in New York at Madame Tussauds. Mm. A little pricey, but totally cutting edge for the future. Um, We'll we'll be offering, we hope, uh, experiences as we've been talking about earlier at the museum uh, in the next fiscal year. Um, We... um, are seeing stuff just popping up left and right. I mean, my gosh, <laughs> Mark, you did these interviews at VR World, a place yeah. that, that is somewhat of a pop-up um, that didn't exist a year ago, and my son is going there tomorrow for a birthday party. He's 11 okay. years old. So a year ago, you couldn't go anywhere, and now, uh, fall of 2017, you, a kid can have a birthday party where you're just going to experience VR. Mm. And it was one of multiple places they could have chosen. Mm. Wow. Although I think the bar will be closed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. It it did uh, it did feature a bar, but it did look it did look like it was uh, it was makeshift and and kind of came and went. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the like dig a layer deeper into the production of um, these environments. And one thing that strikes me is. There are some different sort of frames that come into play from a process perspective. Like as a game designer, you could approach these environments and think about the mechanics of this of, of the game and what are the goals of the space and and you could sort of approach it that way. There's also this this piece of the process that's really about UX and thinking about 
a human-centered experience and, and uh, you know, all kinds of different people who are going to approach this thing. And so there's there's that kind of technical frame. And then, mm -hmm. and then there's a frame of an artist approaching it. Yeah. Right. That that might be um, a much more sort of individual process. Um, and I guess my question is uh, kind of just an open brainstorm. But but for somebody who has some experience putting these things together, do you feel like there one of those is the most practical approach for you in, in your experience? Do you approach it as a game? Do you approach it as a learning experience? Do you approach it as just a piece of art? It's all that and more, and we have to uh, uh, keep attuned to all of them and be able to balance between which things are important when. Mm. So, for example, yesterday um, in the uh, Hall of Biodiversity, we brought out a touch table that we're prototyping. Neat. Right now, if you download our museum app, the Explorer app, um, one of the um, activities that we launched um, when it relaunched a year and a half ago was uh, this Tree of Life experience where maybe you're in front of the cougar exhibit and um, this opportunity will pop up to start building what we what are cladistic trees, which is like a tree of life. So here's two other animals. Which one is more closely related on the evolutionary tree to um, the cougar? And you make your selection. You then see which one's right. And you have these three different mm. taxons, these three different um, animals, and you see which ones are closely related. And as you go through the museum, you can build more trees and they keep getting added. So we've had that around for a while. And yet, yesterday we explored what it would look like if we had a table, like the size of the table we have in front of us, and four people at a time can take these circles that are fun to push around like hockey pucks. But if you add them to your tree, you can start building your own tree. Mm. Right? So is it a game or is it not a game? Well, we're giving people feedback. How many uh, animals have you successfully added to your tree? What percentage of times did you add something to your tree correctly? Was it 100%? Was right every time? Zero? Mm -hmm. Wrong every time? How many levels did your tree did you, did you make? Um, so we can give them a bunch of information, but we didn't build it into a game. We didn't say whoever gets the highest score for, say, the number of animals would win. Yeah. And there'll be a winner at the end, right? But we played with it. So for a while, when the three-minute timer was up, it went, bam, bam, and there was a frowny face as if you had failed. And we thought, well, no, this isn't a game. The whole thing isn't a game. It's something to play with. But we also thought, should we remove those score-type features? Because people would feel like maybe I'm supposed to compete. And we decided, just for the prototype yesterday, to say, you know what? Let's see what people do. We'll make it a playful experience. That was a decision we made on, on the gaming spectrum. But we'll give them information so they can choose to compete if they want. Mm. So we said, how can we scaffold supporting gameplay but not require gameplay? And that's just one example. Those are the questions we have to ask around all the different things you talked about and more. Mm. How much was the learning important for this prototype? How much is the aesthetics of it, having this beautiful experience, right? How much is it about people's social being interacting with each other? We have four sections of the table, so four people can play at once. We assumed four people would each pick their own section. Nope. Little kids are all over the table. Yeah. Or couples might start battling each other and moving around the table. <laughs> and we found all these emergent ways that people found to connect with each other around what we created. So that's just one example. But the larger message here is you don't know unless you test it yeah. unless you bring it out to the users uh, and um, iterate based on that. You just can't know. You can make some guesses. It can be informed guesses. But just looking at last year, the last fiscal year, we observed over 1,000 people, interviewed over 500 of them with all the different prototypes we had to learn from them about what they were experiencing. Um, and without that, we, we really couldn't have known because the kind of interactions that we're talking about, the kind of things that the technology affords are uh, not new in the world, but new enough 
that we're still learning from them and very new in museums mm. when you compare them to other museum experiences. We do have interactives that are analog and digital in the museum. Uh, we tend to see those in the temporary exhibits. Uh, we do have public events where people can do things with each other, but there's still things that are unique to this technology that we've never done before and mm. we'll never figure it out unless we have an active public iterative prototyping process. I think those types of interactive experiences, emergence is so exciting for things that are playful because you create this thing and you have you expect one outcome and all these other things come from it and then you can continue to design and iterate based on those interactions. So emergence is so exciting, isn't it? Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Jesse Joe, you I wonder is anybody teaching this like so so for um, the educator who's out there who's like, oh, they must be teaching this at fancy graduate schools, Parsons, is uh, the D&T program is on the leading edge of lots and lots of things. Um, is there learning you can do for approaching uh, these environments as a designer? In your experience, was, was there stuff available? Well, when I was in the DT program, it was actually, now it's, geared toward game design. There's an actual path. Mm -hmm. It was very different for me. There was only maybe one official game design class, like a Games 101. Yeah. And uh, in order for me to like keep learning about games, I took some grad courses mm -hmm. um, at Parsons. But I think uh, I, learned, I learned a lot about emergence and affordance and these things that come up as you design games and as you prototype and as you iterate and mm -hmm. I think um, it's it's hard to kind of teach those things because when you're learning about game design specifically there's so many different aspects you could be like the coder or you know the idea maker and it, it really depends on like the class the kind of class you're taking sure. I think I took a more general game design class once and it it removed a lot of it removed digital stuff completely so that we could actually um, focus on design. So I think that's more helpful when trying to learn those kind of things. And then when you were there, was there like an AR elective? Uh, not, I don't think at the time, maybe in the grad program, mm, but probably there is now, I would believe. And an NYU's Digital Media Design for Learning program, yeah. which um, uh, Where is I a similar. Alum. You are. <laughs> yes. You're an alum of NYU or DMDL? DMDL. Come on. Yeah. From when? Uh, at at the time, it was it was called ECT. Yes. But uh, but yeah, from back in the day. Wow. All right. <laughs> I, I see what you're saying there. Um, that this is what they teach. My let's put it this way. My tuition paid for this beautiful fancy space that they live in now. <laughs> We were in some crusty, crusty room in oh, Steinhardt. Yeah, you missed out what they have now. It's gorgeous there. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, and the curriculum teaches these things. Um, yeah. We often work with um, DMDL uh, graduate students as interns at the museum. We're very lucky to have them. They're very, very talented. Um, and so I learn what they're learning. Yeah. And I see what they know. And these, the, the way you publicly prototype and you iterate and you evaluate and understanding emergence and these concepts are, are something they clearly are, are learning there. Yeah. So for he, here's what I want to get at in terms of um, how approachable. Where do you start? Like where would an educator start who's listening to this who says, I want to do this now? Well. Or something else. Yes. That 
And I think I think that there are a lot of, especially uh, STEM learning organizations or, or orgs that are focused on digital learning in some way or another. And there's always kind of like the tech du jour uh, where funders get wind of like, oh, you know, AR and VR is where it's at. Yeah. What are you guys doing with AR and VR? <laughs> uh, as somebody who has done this at a place that is a, um, I'm sure resources could always be better. Um, but at a place that's fairly well resourced compared to a mm-hmm. tiny nonprofit like mine, um, what would you say to them before they jump into AR and VR as as uh, an endeavor where we're going to make this into a programmatic experience and we're going to bring kids in and and start to do do AR and VR, which mm-hmm. I realize can mean so many different things. Yeah. There's certainly many paths you can go that are very resource intensive, yeah. both funding, but also the kind of technical knowledge that might be required. Um, but there are things that have been around for quite some time that uh, don't require heavy resources on either side. Uh, people have been doing geolocative games for, for quite some time. Um, uh, uh, Pokemon Go certainly didn't invent that um, and in many ways draws from that. Um, it actually drew from a, a game that the, the same game company had made that was also geolocative gaming. Um, the folks up at uh, MIT have Tailblazer, um, and the folks at Madison have... Um, Something amazing. Yes. <laughs> oh, used it for years. You weren't involved in, in Ghost of New York, were you? No. You I don't know. Oh my gosh, what's it called? It'll come back. I always blank we'll on put it. it. You know what we'll do is you'll, you're going to think of it as soon as we yeah. uh, stop the recording, and then I'll put it in the show notes for people. Okay. So there are many tools that people have been using that are designed for educators, uh, designed for, for you know, nonprofit organizations to do geolocative gaming, which lets you kind of place augmented information and objects in the space around you um, that, that are uh, very uh easy on the learning curve side. Um, and then what I've seen a lot of are people who are figuring out how to get something into a 3D space that you can then experience through like a Google Cardboard. Mm. So um, there's one group I've been seeing uh, a lot actually uh, these last few months where the kids draw something and then it gets photographed and then they put on a Google Cardboard and get on a bicycle, a standing bike, and then they bike on it. <laughs> and as they bike in the Google Cardboard, it's, they see themselves, they see, a ver- they see, I guess, their avatar, just their perspective going through this virtual world they just made. And so it's becoming increasingly cool. easy for people to do something like that, mm-hmm. right? That this is with young people. This is for like, you know, third graders, let's yeah. say. Um, but you, along that spectrum, there's more and more opportunities to do what we might call a 360 photo mm-hmm. or a 360 video, which is different than what I would really call as VR. VR, I think, is much more um, immersive where you can actually uh, be embodied and move around yeah. in it um, and uh, not just watch a movie and be static, which is a powerful thing in but and of it itself. Nice, but it's that space where I see people are able to access, being nice able to make these movies. Stone. Yeah. Yeah. And people are making stuff in Minecraft and bringing that over into a 360 environment where you can uh, look in a gear, uh, bring it into Unity. Um, and, and I think those are all within reach. And we're starting to see more and more educators who are developing curriculum around that, showing the products, the, the tribe. Capital T and mm-hmm. capital T, two Ts. Um, that group of educators, innovators around the, the world who've been using digital digital media in their classrooms, folks like uh, Steve Isaacs and, and Matthew Faber and, and uh, Bron Stuckey and others. Um, that's a wonderful place to check out and get more resources and learn from them. They're, they're, they're on, there's a Facebook group you can join. Um, you can also Google and see what other ways you, you can connect with that that group and be inspired by what they're doing. That's a great resource. I, I, I didn't know. I mean, I know Matthew and I know uh, some of the folks you're mentioning, but I don't know the tribe. So Matthew's book that, is coming out soon, uh... and it's about 
It's about these these um, individual educators and how they built an educational community to support each other around wow. the world, which, which they so call cool. themselves the tribe. Me- like meeting at conferences, actually. That's awesome. where they originally got started. Yeah. What a great idea. I feel like we could do so many I, I feel like we could go in so many directions with this conversation i have anyway, just uh, like my shirt yeah i have what is your shirt oh that's a super cool uh so it's war with the evil power master <laughs> by r.a montgomery choose, choose your, own your own adventure, adventure. i love it. you know what i love i feel like you always show up with the t-shirt game it's like the the thematic i don't know if it's coincidence no, of course not. <laughs> no, the thematic no, tie-in uh, to wherever you are. I, I uh, man, I appreciate you on that. <laughs> but unfortunately, we're going to have to only choose one page to go to. Yeah, in this podcast because so, it can't go in multiple directions. Yeah, right? I we have to choose one page for now. Okay. But I do want. Um, I am going to put you guys on the spot to promise me that we can do this again because this has been so fun, and I feel like we have so much to talk about. Yeah, <laughs> done. Um, promise. I'll move in. Yeah. <laughs> So here's how we're going to end. I had this idea. Um, I'm going to mention, mention by name uh, Mary Flanagan and, uh, and Tilt Factor, which is her sort of shop up at Dartmouth. Um, do some amazing things thinking about the sort of uh, the, the intersection of games and game design with uh, social action and social purpose. And specifically values, understanding how values can be embedded into Thank game design. You. Mm. For it's that. like the game Monarch, which you can find in a game store near you. There you go, and we'll, we will we will link to. Uh, I haven't played Monarch, um, so Mary Flanagan and team put together this thing that we use when we teach game design that we you use guys use at GK yeah. yep. called um, Grow a Game. And you can download the app as well. And Grow a Game is a, a pretty cool and pretty basic way. Uh, so you have a series of cards. There's sort of a, um, a value a game that we all know, usually, like tic-tac-toe or uh, other. And um, and what's the third like thing? The verb, the action, the thing right, you're doing. the action. And you put them together, and, and the idea is to get, uh, in our case, we use it to get young people thinking about how they can uh, remix and mash up to think about how game mechanics can work, especially for social purpose. Um, here's what I want to do is... There are a lot of folks, and there's a lot of good conversation out there about how AR, VR, and mixed reality have the potential to change specifically compassion, right, and uh, and empathy, and how we see the world, and um, and as a result, act on it. So here's what I want to do: is a special version of Grow a Game. Uh, I have not licensed uh, the Grow a Game name, so I'm hoping that Mary won't come after me, uh, but. But she's pretty open about uh, people people using it. So um, here's what I want to do is I have two game designers in the room. And we have a game bell that sounds like this. And here's what we're going to do is I am going to... I'm going through... So you know, uh, in September, there were all these AR apps released because of Apple's, uh, Apple's update and them having released the AR kit. Right, so now there's all these game developers and folks out there who are developing AR apps. So what I did was I dug up the top like six or eight, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna arbitrarily pick one of the latest apps. Right, so you're gonna I'm gonna describe it to you and how it works, and then I'm gonna give you um, a, a social a, an issue. 
right? So um, from here's my list. So Wait, can, if we don't know it, do, can we say pass? Uh, you can pass once. Once, okay. Um, <laughs> and if not, we'll make up what we think it is. Yeah, right. I'm not sure you, about those. Because you're working together, the game bell is really just <laughs> is really just for my... Uh, Who hits the bell, you or us? Our, my giggles. But once you have the idea, you're going to hit the bell. And oh, you're are gonna, we competing or are we collaborating? You're, you're going to... You guys decide. Okay. <laughs> Wherever you come up with the, whoever comes up with the idea first, hit the bell. Uh, you'll say it aloud, and then you can collaborate to refine the idea. I hope you don't mind if I if I collaborate and add some ideas as well. What if we talk to each other? And Mark can't hear us, and we think we have a good one. We'll hit it. Yeah, and we'll tell him. <laughs> you can do good, that. Yeah. You can okay. do that. All right. All right. So, so are you ready for this round? I'm number ready. One. Round number Hit one, Jesse Joe, are you ready? I'm ready. Jesse Joe, by the way, is wearing the most delicious <laughs> sweater <laughs> I think I've ever seen. It has these pink frosted donuts on it. I want on a black for background, that. and it makes these donuts pop in such a way <laughs> that reminds me that uh, I haven't had lunch. a full <laughs> breakfast. So, um, Jesse Joe, are you ready for no such thing? Grow a game, sorta. <laughs> <laughs> round one. Ready. Round okay. one. Fight. Ready. Ready. Player one. <laughs> ready. Player two. The first app is IKEA, who came out with this app for placing furniture in a space. Okay. Uh, you can like if you want the Hemnes uh, bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> You don't have to go yeah. and get the flat pack thing and put it together and then decide you don't want it. Now you can actually put together a whole room of IKEA furniture through this augmented reality app. So the issue is obesity. Obesity. I thought you were going to go with refugees. <laughs> obesity, okay. You never know. When refugees might come up in a later round. All right, all right. But obesity, so obesity is the Ikea, issue. Ikea app. And the verb? There is no verb. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes it easier, though. We have two things yes. to play with. Yes. So how do, we, how do we transform, Jesse Joe, the Ikea app into an experience that develops empathy around the issue of obesity? Oh, man, that's a, a big one. Um, personally, I feel like the word obesity in itself is kind of problematic. So this is an interesting one True. Um, for I, for an Ikea app to tackle. But uh, let's see. Um, you could think about, we could redefine the topic yeah. as body size and being um, body, think about things being body normative. and Yeah, you know. body normative. I like that. Um, that's a good game title. Body normative. <laughs> That'd be the new name of the new couch. Yeah. An IKEA. That does normative kind of sounds like an IKEA couch. It does. Furniture that is uh, <laughs> for all body types. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, I love that. So what if we have an AR experience where you get to have uh, you get to cha change both the furniture you're placing on your table in front of you, like you're pretend like you have a real table in front of you, but you're putting down like small versions of the, your little Ikea furniture mm -hmm. and then you have different bodies that are being offered to you or shapes mm. that you can change and then you see which ones fit and there's different comfort levels that they have and you can tr you're can you trying to figure out how to maximize uh, both 
what the furniture can allow and what the furniture is lacking as a result. Yeah. <laughs> I think we can hit the bell on that. Body normative is the app. <laughs> and I like I would I would pair that with data from all furniture providers where you can basically just have to finger a key. Yeah, you can source furniture for all body types. Somebody's going to take mm-hmm. this idea and make a million dollars, but <laughs> you heard it here first. So right. I think we own I think we own this idea. Copyrighted. All right, round two. Ready player one. Ready. Ready player two. Yes. There is a um, an app called World Brush. Have, has it, World uh, Brush. World Brush. That sounds World like brush. Tilt Brush to me. But I don't, so, I don't know World Brush. Okay. Yep. So there are a few of these painting apps. You're in any environment, and you can um, you can paint. The environment as your um, the environment around you the environment around you as you're in it. I would make you mauve right now. I, well, <laughs> I would prefer to be mauve, so I appreciate that. <laughs> and here is the issue: is energy. Okay. World. <laughs> Mark was like about to say something. We're all waiting for him to say it. His World hand was coming, and it kept going for a long time. World brush and energy. Energy. World brush and energy. Brush and okay. Energy. Well, what if in the app you could paint better uh, energy sources into the world? <laughs> Yo, that's a great idea. We're going to bell that. That was a quick round. Round three. Ready, player one? Ready. Player two? Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here is... Oh, here's one that's right up your alley. <laughs> Bowling. Did I did I tell you I got to meet Neil deGrasse Tyson? Uh, you, you tweeted about it, I believe. You it were was, very excited. It was... Life changing. Did you get a picture? It really was. We just shook hands and he, <laughs> and grabbed, it for and he grabbed my beard. <laughs> so Life I changing. felt. So what was the beard tugging thing? He was just being goofy, <laughs> uh, which I I kind of appreciated. It was weird that you'd reach across the table and touch somebody else's face. It is unusual. <laughs> yeah, but you know where I met Neil? Where? Oh, well, at the I, museum. No. I met him because he was an honoree at the Global Kids Benefit many years ago. No kidding. I had no idea I was going to work at the museum someday. Oh, that's crazy. (laughs) And it was so exciting to meet him. And this is before he was, everyone knew who he was. I knew who he was, but he didn't have that popular intellectual, you know, uh, science status at the time. He was building towards it. And then to get to work with him and be in the elevator with him is tremendously exciting. (laughs) I, however, have no beard. He's not touching my chin. (laughs) No. But he did give me some advice for my upcoming Seltzer book, Seltzertopia, coming out in fall of 2018. (laughs) All right, here here it comes. Round, what are we on? Three? 75. Round 75. Page 53. <laughs> okay, the game, the app, it's really a game that was released in, I think, with uh, using the Apple AR kit uh, and was, was on my list is Zombie Gunship AR. You can imagine I guess what that's about. <laughs> you are a helicopter pilot. <laughs> You are uh, hovering over these zombie-infested lands, and uh, you're doing what you choose. I guess you're extinguishing them or choosing to transport them to Disney World. Farm them, transport (laughs) them to Disney World is an amazing idea. (laughs) Um, Here's what I want to pair it with. Here we go. What's the value? Is hunger. Hunger. 
What a perfect fit, because that's what zombies are. Yeah. They're hungry <laughs> for brains. <laughs> Let's see. Hunger, but you, you mean human hunger, I presume. We're talking yes. about human hunger. We are, not zombie <laughs> hunger. Great. Wow. This is interesting. So the mechanic in the AR is to place zombies around you. You're probably shooting at and killing. Mm-hmm. Right. And instead, we want to modify this, Jesse Joe, to think of, get players to think about the topic of human hunger. Mm-hmm. Can we replace the zombies with not zombies, but hungry people? Who are trying to get our help, but all right, we can do is shoot them? Yeah, I wouldn't want to shoot them. No. <laughs> um, We're assuming a uh, a an open license from oh, zombie gun shooting. We can get rid of the guns. We can just have hungry we can people we want. in our okay. house asking yeah. us for help. What if we shot food it, it, at them? <laughs> well, they do shoot them in the air and and, and Yeah, like sending care packages, and, right? Exactly. Packages, um... Okay. That was you're, one of the earliest. Yeah. You're going around the world and fighting hunger by going to places where hunger is known, um, and you're dropping care packages with food and chocolate. <laughs> and chocolate. Yeah. I love that. Food Fight was one of the first, you know, games for change that the UN produced many years mm. ago, and it was about the logistics of doing just that. Mm. And one of the first 360 VRs that we saw from the New York Times that came out when they sent everyone who was a subscriber of the Google Cardboard, and it mm. was being um, at a location and being with the people watching the planes go overhead as the food came down yeah. and watching the people go towards the packages. It, it makes me think, too, of... Um Stop disasters. Have you guys played that? No. Mm-mm. That was a, it's an an oldie but a goodie. But it's a sim. I think it was also supported by the UN, um, and it was about um, natural disasters and how to sort of protect geographies from natural disasters. And but the nice thing about it, so it's browser based, and and it was this nice sim where you were you were racing against the clock. The disaster was coming, um, and you could sort of you could set up. The environment to save as many people as you could. So I could see uh, somehow having sort of, uh, you know, a, where you you cut to a sort of simulated environment where you're seeing the packages that you're dropping either, you know, increasing uh, health and wellness, happiness uh, meter, etc. Where uh, you're trying to create a sort of geography that thri- or a world that thrives. And what I find so interesting is all this. the examples we talked about just now that exist, they're all about letting you be somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But AR allows us to not just send you somewhere else, but imagine it's in your own space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know what that would look like shooting food out my window, but <laughs> it, it, if you can bring it home mm-hmm. um, and make you feel like it's something you're experiencing around you, it, it brings out that, that sense of empathy, which I think is why um, these tools are often talked about as empathy tools. Mm. All right, you ready for the last round? Yeah, this is the one that decides the winner, right? This one decides <laughs> all the marbles. <laughs> Was that what's in that bowl behind you? The, yeah. The, uh, <laughs> marbles. Well, that's fun to say. Marbles. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> marbles. Yep, there you go. So here is... Um, so there are quite a few apps... Now, uh, one, uh, uh, I think it's actually called Walking Directions, right? Where you're in uh, geography, you don't feel like looking from sort of the uh, top-down bird's view, top-down bird's view, uh, but you're on the street and will actually bring up um, your directions and guideposts in the environment. So you have your camera view, you see the world around you, but it maps on top of it. The directions? Exactly. Mm -hmm. So you're standing on the street, 
and you want to go from point A to point B, it will bring up a series of arrows and signs that are you have your phone in front of you or your your phone in front of you, and it's laying out the like AR Google Maps. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> but there's no Walking Dead. There's no zombies walking along. No zombies. <laughs> zombies are are back in our previous round. No zombies. Although you can add zombies. <laughs> My son thought we should have a game called uh, The Meowing Dead. It should be about zombie cats. <laughs> I feel like Jesse Joe would be the perfect collaborator oh, yeah. for, <laughs> yeah. for, for zombie guys meow. Out. He loved the design. Zombie with. cats. Um, that's amazing. So here it so is. no cats. Walking directions. Walking directions. Okay. <laughs> the issue walking. Yeah. or value, it's really the issue, is uh, poverty. Poverty. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Hmm. So I'm thinking about the representations of poverty that we see walking through the city mm. and how one can connect with the other. Could it be like, here's an arrow towards the closest you know, location where you can donate clothing or soup kitchen, you can donate your time or person asking for money by the subway because they move around. They're not always there. Oh, I, love I that. think that's great. Yeah. Like places to donate clothing. Yeah. Like you said, that's great. What's it called? It needs a name. Walking for good? That sounds terrible. Helping hands. <laughs> Helping, Helping feet. Hands. Helping feet. <laughs> Take me to... I don't have no good idea. <laughs> the meowing dead. I like the, the meowing, meowing dead. dead. <laughs> Guys, that concludes... And I, you're not going to believe this, but I think it's a tie. We all win. We have to all win. We all win. We all lose. We all We're all win. in it together. That was so much fun. Um, Yay. We did it, Jesse Joe. We're shaking hands. We Good did job. it. Good job. Mark, you tried to trip us up, but you couldn't get us. Yeah, no. There is no stumping the two of you. It was amazing. Um, guys, this was so fun. Thank you, Mark. And I know you are both uh, busy people. Jesse Joe, where can people find you uh, on the internet? Uh, if there is a place you want them to find you. Uh, if you go to jessiejoe.carbonmade.com, you can look at some of my experiences and some of my work, and you can contact me through there. My There's a messaging page, and my email is there. Awesome. Yeah. J-E-S-S-Y-J-O? Yeah, J-E-S-S-Y-J-O.carbonmade.com. Awesome. Barry, mooshme.org. Mooshme.org, M-O-O-S-H-M-E.org, or on Twitter, triple M, Mooshme, M-M-M-O-O-S-H-M-E. Do you want to very quickly tell the story of, of Mooshme? Okay, so the short story is, as I mentioned, once upon a time, I did not work at the American Museum of Natural History. Right. <laughs> and as you might have picked up, I have a son. Yeah. And once upon a time, I was bringing him to the museum. We, we've my played wife pinball I. together. Yes, we have. The Pinball Museum in Asbury Park, New Jersey. Yeah. Over 100 pinball machines in a museum Silver context. Yeah. You can start in the 40s and move your way up. It's great. Anyway, um, so I had a son. I didn't used to work at the museum. Um, and my wife and I were bringing him there when he was really little. And he got super excited. And he was, like, happily yelling over and over, Moosh, moosh, moosh me. Moosh, moosh, moosh me. And we had no idea what he was talking about. And when we got to the museum, we went right to the cafeteria. And he got super sad, we think, because the cafeteria was not what he was expecting to see at the museum. Right. Um, and he started saying it again. You know, moosh, moosh, moosh me. And then we finished eating. We went out to the planetarium. And now he recognized where we were. And he got super excited. And now, with excitement, he was saying, moosh, moosh, moosh me. And my wife heard him for the first time in a way I hadn't heard him. And we were saying, ah, that's what he was saying. American Museum of Natural History. But <laughs> at his young age, he was, moosh, moosh, moosh me. And so 
when I was starting work at the museum, which was my first time working in a museum, I'd worked with museums, but not at a museum, and a museum that I've been going to since I was four or five years old, I wanted to make sure that the longer I was there, I wouldn't forget that incredible sense of excitement yeah. for a young person and that excitement that I had as a young person and as an adult going to the museum. So Mushmi became the name of my kind of identity as someone thinking about digital media and learning and my identity of working at the museum. So I, I can always that. remind myself of that that um, sense of awe, that sense of excitement, and that sense of passion. Such a good story. Nowadays, I just run past the T-Rex and late to a meeting and I walk <laughs> over visitors. Boring. You're like <laughs> giant uh, billion-year-old fossils. Boring. Done with that. Yeah. I got to get to my meeting. Yeah. Um, I it's say, not interesting until, you, until uh, Pokemon Go, until you like see a... Uh, we have two gyms in the museum. <laughs> <laughs> we have a whole Facebook group just for employees who play. Guys, thank you so much. Thank and, you, Mark. And promise me we can do this again. Yes, promise. please. Promise. Bring us back. You're awesome. <laughs> if you have seltzer. Yeah, you got it. Thanks, guys. <laughs> This podcast was produced in partnership with City University of New York's master's program in youth studies. Learn more at sps.cuny.edu. And Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us at mouse.org. Sound assistance was provided by Alex Fleming. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, and a young person who I once had the pleasure of working with. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. The podcast is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found linked wherever you downloaded the show. 